Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Now, when you think of those amazing Roman structures like the Pantheon, you might marvel that they're still standing pretty much intact after all these centuries. So what's so special about this ancient construction that leaves us with this marvellous building? Well, our next guest might be able to tell us. Her name is uh, Linda Seymour. She's a former MIT doctoral student and a civil engineer, and she uh, wrote a paper on the concrete of the Romans. Welcome to the programme, Linda. How did you get interested in Roman concrete? Oh, that's an excellent question. Uh, Thanks for having me today. I got interested in Roman concrete because I just really like historic structures and I really like trying to understand how structures are able to withstand the test of time. And I think Roman concrete is one of the best examples of that. So obviously people are familiar with uh, many of the the famous uh, Roman structures like the Colosseum and the Pantheon and so on. Um, Are all Roman structures made from the same stuff? No, actually, the Romans changed up their formulations for their concrete and mortars based on different scenarios. And so it might have been whether or not they had local material availability. It might be the type of structure that they were building. And then even within the same structure, they would change up the concrete that they were using. So if we think about the Pantheon, which you mentioned earlier, they actually changed up the type of aggregate that they were using as they were going up in order to make a lighter and lighter material as they went. So they were pretty savvy engineers and sort of adapting to situations. Uh, This sounds like a stupid question. I know my dad is is, is probably listening and rolling his eyes because I should know the answer to this, but what is concrete made of? Well, excellent question. When it comes to Roman concrete specifically, that concrete is going to be made out of three primary ingredients. Those ingredients are lime, which is a source of calcium. It's going to come from most likely limestone that's been burned or calcined in order to make it reactive. When you say um, um, heated up to make it reactive, do we know how that was how that was done? Did they just stick some limestone in a hot fire? Uh, yeah, they would actually build kilns, lime kilns, in order to burn the lime, essentially, and ah. make it reactive. Okay. Um, then your next ingredient is going to be an aluminosilicate of some sort. This is typically going to be a volcanic ash, something that's reactive. And then all of this is mixed together with water. And with that water, it's going to undergo what we call the pozzolanic reaction. And that's what's going to make it set or harden and gain strength over time. So those are the three primary ingredients that we think about when we think about our typical Roman concrete. And, and, and did the Romans in, invent concrete or was it an indifferent uh, forms elsewhere? My history, by the way, is much, much worse than my science, which isn't great. <laughs> <laughs> No worries. I'm definitely more on the engineering side than the history side. But for even before the Romans, we were using various types of mortars, plasters, concrete. Uh, But the thing about previous mortars was that when they had that lime and they mixed it in with water, they didn't have that aluminosilicate present necessarily. So they were making what's known as an aerial lime mortar. And aerial lime mortars need carbon dioxide from the air in order to harden. So what the Romans did that was unique was they started adding this volcanic ash, this aluminosilicate, and that allowed it to react in a hydraulic reaction, that pozzolanic reaction, 
So you can build bigger structures because the center doesn't need to be exposed to the air in order to harden. You can build structures underwater and you can also build structures that are larger just because the concrete itself is stronger. When you say structures underwater, are you saying that this Roman concrete was was the first to be used in in, in building things with, with foundations underwater or actual underwater structures? Uh, so the Romans were using their concrete in order to make marinas, um, harbors. Right. And, of course. But we yeah. do have evidence uh, as early as the Phoenicians of them using ground up uh, pottery or clay, fired clay in order to make a posolonic concrete that they could use to line sort of baths or pools or those kinds of things. So they weren't, the Romans weren't necessarily the first to make something that could set and harden underwater, but they were definitely what we think of when we think of the ones that made it sort of commonplace and made it, you know, part of their day-to-day infrastructure. So talk to me about your research. What were you looking at and what were you hoping to find? Well, we were looking at these samples of concrete from a city wall in a teeny tiny little village called Privernum. And when we were looking at these samples, what we noticed were these little white chunks that were throughout the mortar and the concrete. Now, this wasn't necessarily new. We had read previous studies by other scientists that had studied these little white lumps. They're basically remnant pieces of that lime that was once burned in order to make the concrete, um, make that line that was reactive. And so we thought they were interesting because we see them throughout most concrete that we study, most of the Roman mortars and concretes. And so we wanted to give them a little bit of a closer look because most of the lime class that had been studied were sort of auxiliary or they were from marine mortars. Um, and we took them into the lab. We took these little lime class under the microscope. Sorry, what is a lime clast? Um, oh, the lime class, that's going to be those little white chunks, those little pieces of remnant lime okay. that did not necessarily react in that initial um, postulatic reaction. Okay, so, th- so this kind of chunks of lime that you thought were probably excess debris or something. Exactly. So a lot of people have attributed their presence due to poor mixing, for example, of the mortars and concrete. Um, but we wanted to look at them to see to what extent they had reacted if they were uh, if they were there as, you know, just little chunks of calcium carbonate, which is what limestone is, or if they had reacted with some of the aluminosilicates to make other minerals and, and what that looked like. So we started looking through these lime class and as we were characterizing them, we noticed that the calcium carbonate that was inside of them, so that primary limestone material, didn't look quite as we expected it to. There was something a little different about what we were seeing inside of it, especially at the core of these lime class. Hmm. And so that's what led us to start hypothesizing about, well, how did these lime class get there? And what could they possibly be doing within the material? We noticed the, the signature associated with these lime class was very reminiscent of previous studies where lime had carbonated in a low humidity condition, which is surprising because water was one of the three ingredients we talked about earlier, right? Uh, So to have a low humidity condition within a mortar sample just was a little perplexing. And that's when we came up with this hypothesis regarding hot mixing, where when you add the lime into the mortar or the concrete and you're mixing it up, that lime 
uh, when it undergoes the first reaction with water, it's a very exothermic reaction. It gets really, really hot. And so typically when we think about making Roman mortars and concrete, we think about making them with lime that has already been exposed to water before it's added into the concrete. Yeah. Uh, but if you add it directly in and you have that extra heat and you have that exothermic reaction going on, you can actually get it hot enough to evaporate some of the water in these little localized pockets and create that low humidity condition for the lime to carbonate in that low humidity condition. And so- uh, why, why, But why would that be happens. useful? That's a really good question. Um, and the reason that this could be useful is a, a variety of reasons, but the primary one is that when you have a hotter mix and you're doing this process of hot mixing, you're accelerating all of those reactions that are taking place when you first mix the concrete. So if you think about how long it takes the concrete to get hard, so it going from that sort of flowable material into something that can actually start to take weight um, and you can build on top of it again, hot mixing makes that process happen faster. Right. Uh, and so that's one of the primary reasons that we might, or that the Romans might have wanted to use that process. D does it also have um, a, a, an ability to self-heal this, uh, this Roman uh, concrete that you describe? Yeah, so one of the things that the primary reason we were looking at the, the mortar to begin with was the fact that these structures are standing for so long mm. and uh, they've definitely withstood the test of time and they would they have stood longer than I wanted my PhD to last, that's for sure. <laughs> so I so by looking at these, we were trying to see signs of how they might have evolved over time, over the 2000 years that they've been standing. And what we noticed was that in a lot of the little pores or cracks, so those little empty spaces that form over time as the structure shifts or as it degrades a little, uh, a lot of those pores and cracks were actually lined with a calcite-rich material. Um, and calcite is one of those primary forms of calcium carbonate that we talked about earlier. And we saw them in particular in and around these lime clasps where we saw cracks going through lime clasps, and then on the sides of those cracks would be calcium carbonate. Um, in a lot of the literature that you read about Roman concrete, you know, we talk about how it continues to evolve over time. There's so many reactions going on. There's no one thing that gives it sort of a self-healing property necessarily, or one property that gives it that long-term durability. So this is just one small piece in the puzzle. But what we think is happening is that over time, those line clasps, after a crack, you know, intersects them and water gets in, it dissolves some of that lime, brings it back out into the crack, it recrystallizes and eventually densifies that space, bridges the crack, and allows the concrete to continue living its life, essentially. That's amazing. I mean, like, when you think about how long ago we're talking about uh, you know, to create a self-healing concrete sounds like something you'd read in New Scientist today. So tell me a little bit about what you've learned. I mean, for me, I'm surprised that we don't know this already, um, the exact mineral and the exa exact um, process, because didn't the Romans document everything? Do, they, do, do we not have good instructions or like a manual to create concrete from, from Roman times? Or is that, is that, is that still elusive? We, we do have a pretty good idea of at least the overarching process and the overarching materials that they were using. Um, but one of the problems is a lot of the materials that they were using, 
tended to be pretty specific to the localities that they were in. Yeah. Um, or in the case of volcanic ash, they were, you know, really interested in using this volcanic ash known as Pozzolana Rose, uh, which is from Italy. And they would actually ship volcanic ash throughout their empire wow. as ballast and their ships going from port to port, essentially. They so, really recognized the value of this volcanic ash in making in making things. They really did. Um, and they were selectively picking out, you know, different volcanic ashes that, that reacted really well. And so we see that part of sort of the Roman architectural revolution was part of this refined strategy to make a systematic concrete, essentially, um, where they knew sort of how to take the bits and pieces and put them together. The part that makes it difficult today in terms of recreating it is uh, just being able to to find what that exact order of operations was or or what those exact ingredients should be. Um, we have a lot of ideas, but there's just also a lot of long-term processes going on over the course of these last 2,000 years that what we make in the lab today may not look like what we see in the field when we go to an ancient structure. Right. And even even imaging now, you're imaging what it looks like now as opposed to what it might have looked like 2,000 years ago, which doesn't help when you're trying to reconfigure that recipe. I mean, if you could, would, would the, the way they make concrete, would that have commercial applications today? Or have we, have we created much better um, uh, materials to, to make buildings, uh, to make mortar uh, in, in the 21st century? In present day, uh, we use what's known as ordinary Portland cement in our concrete, and it's pretty good. We're able to tune concrete pretty well, given different applications. Within a single building, you might have a few different concrete mixes that are going into it. So in that regard, you know, we have a, a pretty good system in place. What we're looking to do, though, is always extend the life of those structures always kind of improve upon what we're doing. And in particular, we're trying to make sure that we have different formulations that allow the structures to sort of evolve over time. And one of the things that I'm interested in when it comes to Roman concrete is how we can take these really long-term scale processes and apply them in our, our modern concrete. So when it came to what we were seeing in the Roman concrete with these lime class going or it within the structures and then with those calcite lined pores and cracks, we wanted to see if we could recreate that because if we're able to make a concrete where we have these little pockets of, of basically self-healing materials um, to fill pores and cracks, like why not? Yeah. Every crack that we're able to fill is one less crack that you know allows a corrosive environment to come into our concrete. We just found out, we found that by using this hot mixing strategy and sort of making sure that those lime class were in, we were actually able to make a modern analog that had the self-healing properties that we were seeing in the Roman concrete. Which, which, which can be so useful. And certainly if you had that in the mid 20th century, when America was building its entire concrete infrastructure, it would have been very useful because I know that that um, entire network is, is crumbling as we speak. Really, really interesting stuff. Thank you so much. Linda Seymour, a former MIT student and civil engineer uh, on Roman concrete. Really enjoy that. Thanks. Thank you. Future Proof Extra with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.